0: Well, thank you both so much for being here. I'm so happy to be chatting with supervising sound editor, Renee Tondelli. Is that right, Tondelli? Tondelli. Tundele. Mm-hmm. And recording mixer, Julian Slater. Welcome, you guys, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks.
0: So my understanding, neither of you have, have had a chance in the past to work with Aaron Sorkin. So when you got that phone call, what were your first thoughts knowing his body of work, his history, and just since this was his second film, uh, Molly's Game being his first directorial debut, Maybe, Renee, what were you thinking when you first found out about this project?
1: Well, he was always on my bucket list of directors to, once he started directing, because I love writer-directors, auteurs are just amazing, they really understand, they really are devoted to the story, so it was really exciting for me to work with him. And I asked, actually, a year before, when I first heard about it, I called up Alan Baumgarten, who is going to be the editor, who's someone I've worked with in the past, the, the picture editor. And I said, Alan, I'd love to work on this. And he said, well, it's, you know, we would too, but it's going to go to New York. So I, I didn't bother with it at all because I knew it was going to happen in New York. And then about, I think a month later, we got a call. Alan said, hey, do you still want to do this? Uh, the New York thing is not going to happen. So um, you want to do it? And I said, oh, f- yes, of course. You know, so um Then Julian, he told me Julian was getting on, and I was like, fantastic! So, because I've always wanted to work with Julian, Um, so it turned out to be a really exciting time. What about for you, Julian?
2: Well, obviously, when you get uh, asked to be involved in an Aaron Sorkin project, you know, it's um, it's a bit of an honour to be honest with you, and also, you know, it was a coalescing of a few things. You know, not only working with Aaron or for Aaron. Working with Alan, the picture editor, and working with Renee, two people that I've known for a few years now, been a great admirer of their work and the stuff that they do. So it was like a kind of perfect, um, a perfect gathering of people that um, I really admire and respect. So, uh, and then add on top of that, the the subject matter, which was felt like an important thing. The project actually felt like an important piece of cinema. Um, to be involved with. So I think we all felt that it was something that was not just a popcorn piece of uh, entertainment, but it was something that had a resonance and a message and was important because of what was is happening um, in the world.
0: Yeah, it's incredible um, just watching the film for the second time and recognizing how much of this film takes place in the set piece of the courtroom, which, you know, for Aaron, you know, it's not the first time that he's written or or set the film, I think of, you know, A Few Good Men, The West Wing even, it, it, it just, there's so much um, emphasis in in Aaron's films on dialogue. And I'd love to understand maybe just from the production side of, um, with your production mixer, what was the approach? What was the direc- direction, Renee, that you gave him of of coverage and how, what, like, what was the, the process? What What is the tip for doing a courtroom scene with coverage, with overlaps and just the incredible speed that Aaron writes?
1: Well, it was pretty fascinating. First of all, sadly, because I came on so late, I didn't get a chance to really work with the production mixer. But he was amazing. He had at first when he showed up in the courtroom, he thought, "Okay, I'll have eight mics. You know, that's plenty. And then after the first day, he's like, we need more mics. And he went out and there were probably 12, 13, 14 mics going on all the time, which was really wonderful in a courtroom scene because we had mics for the judge we had mics at the tables we had lob mics we had courtroom walla mics we had the back room everything had a mic to it so it also because of that as julian will attest to it was also very difficult sometimes to cut because everybody had a different reverb on their background on their dialogue so it allowed this beautiful reverb, natural sound that that sort of echoed through the whole mm-hmm. thing. It was, it was a wonderful naturalness to it. And the fact that we could always go back to someone and there was actually coverage for that person was just really, we were really lucky. He did an amazing job.
0: Yeah. And then for you, Julian, you know, what did you find in terms of spatially? Because uh, when there is a courtroom, there's a natural ambience. You have like, you know, a cacup- not cacophonous, but it's a wooden environment. But I also found that like there's just like the shuffling of people and just creating that atmosphere and tension and kind of like reactions of group or like how did you want to kind of start creating that space you know sonically in terms of the sound of uh, the courtroom
2: well i think i think both renee and i we talked about you know this courtroom almost being its own having its own personality at different times you know the the what was going on in the courtroom with the audience how they reacted and also playing with the space um you know we Sometimes we kind of reduced the reverb, the natural reverb on some performances, and then gave more reverb to others. You know, particularly um, the judge, Judge Hoffman, whenever he spoke or he, uh, um, you know, got angry with the defendants, we wanted to make sure that his voice you know, was a booming presence compared to some of the others. So you know, it was a question of of, of smoothing out the reverbs, but also um, you know. Giving different characters different flavors so that they um how how they spoke had gravitas at different parts of the story.
1: Yeah. That- yeah. When you when you have 23 minutes of a courtroom scene, you're like, oh, wow, that's I mean, it takes a lot of it seems simple, but it's really complex. I mean, it can be simple to be complex, and it can be complex to be simple. So there was a lot that was actually that was one of the biggest. Moment, The biggest pieces that Aaron was concerned with, he really wanted that to sound full and rich so that when the people stood up, when the people reacted, everything had many, many levels to it, that we did a lot of a lot of work to make that interesting. And um, there was simplicity to it, but it was really complicated in the levels of what we did. I mean, um one of the scenes that comes to mind too I mean the the um, courtroom scene had many little characters in its own moment I mean each it was either expressive or quiet or volatile or funny I mean it had all of these elements to it that made it a very active character in the film
2: I was very surprised that Aaron was equally equally as... Detailed on the crowd and the crowd reactions, and even the shuffles as he was with the dialogue. You'd you'd have thought that I would have thought I had assumed, you know, with Aaron, it it was all about the dialogue. But that's not necessarily the case at all. He was, he was as um, interested in the personality of that courtroom as he was with anything else going on. So it's you know it's not just all about the dialogue with Aaron. It's 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 what that dialogue is seated within.
1: I think our sound effects were like words to him. That everything that we did—and by the way, we have to give huge shout out to Michael Babcock, who was our sound effects mixer. He really was amazing through this process. And there was really a very small crew in general for what we were going through, but it was a really tight, wonderful crew. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody felt the same passion through this. Um, their one experience that we would, that I think I sent you a clip of was the, the Bobby seal scene. Um, that setting,
0: was, you're setting this up so perfectly. I want to talk to you about that because that's, that's later um, in the film, but that's when um you know, Frank, Frank Langella, the, the actor has played judge Julius Hoffman. Like he he is such an in- interesting character when they bring Bobby seal into the courtroom. I love, yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing up that clip. <laughs> I would love for you to set up, just, just the tension because, like, creating tension to me is not a simple task. Because, no, yeah, go ahead and set this up. I love for you to describe it. No,
1: I mean, I just a side note. Poor Julian. I, Judge Hoffman throughout the entire mix just made me so angry every time he did anything, and I would mi- and I was very vocal behind Julian, which I didn't realize, and I was like, oh. No, oh, and Julian finally stopped very timidly and turned around and said, Renee, if I'm doing something wrong here, I wish you, you know, just let me know. And I said, Oh my God, no, I'm reacting to Julius Hoffman.
3: Marshals, take that defendant into a room and deal with him
1: as he should be dealt with.
3: Let the record show that I tried.
1: Anyway, in that particular scene, which was very powerful and very important to us, because of course it's still happening today, we used this silence and hyperfully to experience what w- was going on. And it sort of this, and it was important for Aaron too to have everything expressed like this heavy hand of the federal government coming down on us. So when they take him away when the judge says, take him away and do what needs to be done with this defendant. They take him into a back room and the courtroom is now in shock. And we would cut back and forth between these two elements, the the quietness of the federal prosecutor just clicking his pen once, then cutting back to Bobby being shackled and handcuffed and chained, and then cutting back to the courtroom with just a silent movement of someone in the chair. I mean, it was like they were holding, everyone was holding their breath because all this was going on behind the scenes. And we would cut back and forth and everything was very deliberate and very pronounced and, and really like hyper is a way I would describe it. and When they came back, you know, it's like the writing of a pen was another element that all you heard was that, cut back to Bobby. And everybody was waiting until that door opened. And when the door opened was that moment of expression where everybody was just like aghast at what they saw. Nobody expected that.
0: Yeah, Composer also with Daniel um, Pemberton's, his his underscoring that he does in that scene, just the emotion of what he's conveying in his score is just somber and just kind of dismayed. And it really leans into just, it's a weird contrast of trying to understand what's right, what's wrong. How is a judge, you know, basically promoting violence in his courtroom? So anyway- So yeah. easily. Yeah, so easily, yeah. You know,
2: on the surface, that's that would seem a relatively simple scene, but you know, I think we all know in sound that doing the simple stuff can be as, as tricky as doing the complicated stuff because you've got nothing to hide behind, you know? So we were very deliberate and wanted to make sure that every single sound was perfect and right for that moment. And, you know, as Renee says, you know, it's the intercut between Bobby being shackled and uh, uh, beaten and, um, you know, playing that from his perspective and going back to the courtroom where, you know, the courtroom is in a state of shock, yet you were hearing you know, subtle creaks from people shuffling in their seats and, you know, the the, the tension that is going on in that courtroom. So it's an interesting scene um, for that reason.
0: That's great. Well, so talking about intercutting, um, one of the other clips that you guys have pulled out, which is wonderful, is Abby Hoffman. It's a little bit later when it's this intercutting between the confrontation on the bridge. And the thing about this film, which is really interesting in terms of um, jumping from going between past and future Opportunity or not opportunities, but the events that took place and 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 how they it's like a flashback to the courtroom in terms of the things that they did that basically got them into the courtroom in, in the first place. So I'd love for you guys to set up this this clip of it's like Abby getting the crowd going and then confronting the bridge because there's incredible um crowd and group and just once again tension. Like every scene, there's there's not a moment of not the tension feeling there. So yeah, it's maybe set up. Renee, how you guys built this scene, because it's such a great example of intercutting, which Aaron does fantastically. I mean, he's the master of it.
3: So a guy in the crowd is marching with a girl on his shoulders. She's waving an American flag, and this seems to really be bothering some frat brothers who come to town in the spirit of fraternity? Put down the put goddamn flag! Hey, put the flag down! Been 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 can been you hear us? Are you fighting, Captain? You know you can hear me. Put the, me. Put the flag you down! Kitchen,
1: your
0: come fucking out. sandwich tam- yeah. down! in the kitchen! I'm
3: gonna go back there and take care of that. They're not the enemy. In so many fucking ways, they are. Free Domin! Free Domin! Group turned left on 11th Street. We make left on 11th Street. And that's when they saw it.
2: Holy shit. Are they about to conquer Spain? Fuck
3: it. Okay. What do you mean, fuck it? This is it. It's time. We're not rushing the police. Why the fuck not? Because we will be critically injured. Tom doesn't want anyone hurt. We've got to turn this crowd around. There's too much momentum. We've got to turn them around I mean, what, and calm what, them down. What are we doing he's here? Right? This is not safe. I know something about this, OK? Marshals.
2: turn them around and
3: slow them down. It's like Alamo back here. Turn them around and bring them safely no, we, back we, to the park. We should be marching right up to them. I don't think they're going to surrender, man. Keep a moving. Free Dave on and I are going to stand and make Tom's bail. Back to the park! I don't carry money. Do you? I do. I'm a grown man.
1: The interesting part of this, of course, we have to talk about the other character in our movie, which was COVID. Um, when we started out to do this film, it was in February. And it was right before the first lockdown. And nobody knew what to do. And I'm looking at this film where there's three or four riot scenes, courtroom scenes, all kinds of characters that need to be done. The Black Panthers, the judge, the, the reporters, the journalists. How are we going to do this? I mean, we couldn't get more than one person on a stage at the same time. So we ended up, I was like, was and I called around, and nobody had a plan in place yet. So I just started improvising, and I thought, okay, everybody's got a phone, so I'll have everyone. I cast the group first, and I had them all by the same mic. And then I spent about two weeks with them, going through their homes, going through their closets, setting up their space, explaining how to do how to do all the settings for their mic, for the recordings, for the plug, in, for the. Um, the platform, they had to watch the film on Zoom, believe it or not. Not a lot of people even knew how to use mm-hmm. Zoom at that point. So we did this, and then they would send me their samples. And then I would go over each and every actor, you know, because they they weren't engineers. They were really hired, as I said, you're hired now because you're talented, but you'll be hired in the future because you know how to do this. So they, they were all very good sports and, and eager to learn this. So... We kind of went through a um, mini recording uh, education for all of them. And once I felt like they really got it, then we went through with, I went with the casting director and we went through each and every cue and cast each cue because you could only have 10 people on at once. So you had to make sure that the actors that were available, to do that cue were there and then they'd have to jump off and we would do the next one and it was it was like air traffic controlling with all these actors and it was very complex and then when you get all this back cuz they were basically doing it by themselves so they're in their closet reacting to this singularly which much like a, of of an orchestra like if you're a violinist and you're playing in your home practicing, you're gonna play a different way than when you're on the stage with your fellow violinists and you start getting into one another and you create this sound that becomes a unified collective sound. So I ended up getting all of these wild singular lines sent back to me. And I mean, now that's, you know, and we also had, um, uh, we were limited in our budget So I couldn't get something like Source Connect or anything like that. And uh, my assistant built out these massive library sessions with all of the different cues lined up for each scene. And then when you go to cut singular voices that create the big elements of scenes, it's a really different experience, I found out, than just having the group wallas where it was a collective group. It was much more granular. So, on one way, it was good because I could go through each individual one and get rid of ones, pitch something, change something, do different combinations with different voices to create different experiences. I mean, even simple things like the chanting. Everybody did a chant, but the chants, when you, I would find that like these five people work together as a harmonic group chanting. And then these five would be another section of it that would be the bass section. And it ended up being like a musical composition to create all of these voices that would then be enveloped into this background. So in that particular scene, we had that. Oh, and just to preface all this, Aaron Sorkin, who's a master storyteller, mm-hmm. as we know, wants everything to be heard. So we were constantly making choices about what needed to be heard. Each person needed to be heard and then woven in and out of the scene so that the sunlight could go where it needed to go at that moment. And we had crowds yelling, we had chanting, we had uh, megaphones, we had bullhorns, we had walkie talkies, we had sound effects, we had music and score. All the while, Jerry and Abby are having this sort of personable chat about how to go forward and how to proceed. And then Dave comes in, who's another character in the movie, and he has a really low, soft talking voice. So it was this element of how do we, and Julian and Michael were masters at creating this. It was making these moments work with each other like a, this mechanical, beautiful mosaic that would come in and yep. out. And and it was, it, it spent, we spent a lot of time mixing on those and a lot of time, you know, creating
0: it. So Julian, the question I want to ask you is um, like for a director like Sorkin who knows every word and every beat in his script, when it not only comes to his attention to detail with dialogue, you know, what is it like to work with him on this, did he show up at the stage? What was the type of direction? like? How is he unique and different? Because there's not many times. I mean, it's often that you have, you know, writer directors like Tarantino or Christopher Nolan, and, and they they know every every page turn. So what, what was it like for Sorkin? How, how did he maybe a treat sound differently for you?
2: Well, let me say I was fully aware that uh uh Aaron Sorkin was the director and the gravitas for me that comes with that. And um I certainly uh never took it lightly. And I should also, just to Renee's point, I should, you know. I will forever be eternally grateful to Renee because you get told you're doing, uh, you know, you're going to work for Aaron Sorkin, work with Aaron Sorkin, who was the master of, uh, you know, written dialogue, and then you have a pandemic where all the main characters' ADR is going to be shot in their cupboards and uh, in their wardrobes, and you're like, oh, my God, this is just going to... I've been dealt a bit of a bad hand here, but Renee did such a great job with the rehearsals and the... um, you know, uh, making sure that everything sounded as great as it could do. So um, thank you, Renee, again. Mm. Um, You did a great job. Yeah,
1: we did that with the principal actors too. Yeah,
2: with the principal actors as well. (laughs) Um, But to your point, Michael, I mean, he actually was not uh, heavily involved until he came for a review. And very much um, the relationship with Alan, the picture editor, and uh, Aaron is that, Uh, Alan is very much his wingman, and um, Alan is very forensic, I would say, in his approach to sound. So, um, you know, we'd obviously do the pre-dubs without Alan and have a conversation with him beforehand, and then Alan would come down and review everything and then get into the tiny detail and really get into the weeds of the dialogues. And, you know, uh, he's he's extremely precise on... uh, any little thing that uh, could distract the audience away from the dialogue. So you've got to be very, very um, careful to make sure that the flow and the cadence of what those performances are doing are um, held on onto. Um, so we did a lot of going back and forth and making sure that those dialogues were as smooth and, as, um, and flowed as much as possible. And then Aaron actually came down at the very end and, and then would not have a huge amount of notes with regards to the dialogue, which I think I alluded to before, which kind of surprised me, I think, because Alan was so forensic in his approach. And in fact, Aaron said to us, you know, when he turned up for the first time, he said, look, I know words, I know dialogue, I know what I've done, but I also know what you guys are capable of doing and you, you are experts in what you do. So I'm, I really want you guys to do your approach and show me what you think it should be. Which is like you know very liberating because yeah. you know we all work with some directors who micromanage and we are some some directors who have different approaches to sound. But Aaron is very much um, this is what I've created. This is what I've done. Uh, I want you guys to do your approach to it and and you show me what it is that what what your take on what it should be.
0: Uh, yeah, go for it, Renee.
1: Yeah, I mean I never met. This is the first time I ever worked on a film where I didn't get to meet the director until the playback. I mean, we talked to each other all the time through email and and we would talk on the phone, but he was pretty, he was even hands-off with all of it. He was like, he'd show up for the ADR sessions and he would inter- you know, say hi to the actors and everything. Then he was like, okay, Renee. And then he would leave and it would just be, you know, the two of us doing stuff so he was very much he understood who did what and he, I don't think he really had the patience necessarily to sit there and do you know the ADR he just assumed that we would do it really well Yeah. And so, so with that kind of um he and by being that way it allowed us to be to stretch out a lot more because when you work with a director who's very he's specific about what he wants and he knows that this is it and he's got his parameters pretty tightly, you know, corralled. You find yourself doing, not being as courageous with what you want to do. So we went and did whatever we felt like doing in the beginning, whatever we thought was going to really sound great and um, worked on that level. And then Alan, like Julian said, Alan came in and he's know i've worked with alan he's like
0: really good with sound
1: he really is
0: i'm so mentioned that you mentioned alan because um the next clip i want you guys to talk about is is the scene of of this confrontation on the hill this very violent with tear gas and just really aggressive behavior um it's interesting because this it there's flashes of historical footage from those moments which reminds us of the fact of the true nature of just this was a real Mm -hmm. event and and I'd be curious of how that evolved. Was it always a case of, of intercutting those scenes and then also maybe set up how you how this incredible, you know, really uh, dangerous moment was um, put together? Because we have tons of background. And like you said, there's moments of dialogue of people connecting and we get those moments. So, yeah, maybe Renee set up just did you guys start with this scene from a blank slate? Like how much of it was reconstructed or, or production?
1: Well, one of the things we did before we even started was I had my crew watch Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool, which was a film shot in 1968 in the midst of the riots and the the protest scenes and the marches and the convention. He actually had his actors go live through this as a background and film it. So we were able, we're very lucky because we actually got to hear and see what it really sounded like. Um, in and in that veracity was something I said to them, look, I really want this to be what we do. I want. I don't want this to be slick and polished and... Big. I want this to be identifiable because this chaos that we're experiencing right now is so overwhelming and palpable that I want people to really be able to relate to this on that level. Um, There was a woman in this movie off camera screaming as she was being beaten by a cop. And it was so visceral to me that it became sort of my touchstone to make all of these protest scenes tra- to be as real and tangible to all of us as possible. So that's that was really important to us and we all sort of had that same note going forward. So everybody worked on those scenes with that intention. I think we all felt like we really wanted this to be have veracity and a connection and a and Intimate connection with the audience to these scenes.
3: Put down the goddamn flag! can cut!
0: Don't make me say it! Put it down! Put the flag down! Put it down! The situation. They will listen to you.
3: Huh. What? Nothing. Yeah, that, that sounded nice when you said it.
0: Right now! Yeah. Someone from
3: the crowd shouts. A guy me. somewhere in the crowd shouts. Someone in the crowd shouted. Take the hell! Hey, hey. 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 The street name for chloroacetone phenone for is tear gas. Fire! And it's a fucking blowtorch. Your lungs, your skin, your eyes. Riot clubs? They're made out of the same wood they use for baseball bats. You just got to hold this over your face, okay? Hold this over your face. I'm take you to the first aid
0: station. Okay? You're all right. I got you. We have to go. Okay, I'm gonna get you out of here. I'm
3: gonna... Don't move, Jerry. <laughs> Man, get those guys! You're under are... arrest. After bailing out Tom Hayden, Abby, Dave, and Tom returned to the park. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, and I think to that point of what Renee was saying,
3: you know, there was obviously
2: at that time um, not only we were not only deep in COVID, but there was you know the Black Lives Matter marches were going on, and um, I think we felt that we wanted the uh, anger and the energy and the 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 the, the, the vibe of what was happening on the streets at the time when we were doing the mixes to 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 come across in this this movie that was set obviously you know many years before because it was essentially the same thing. So you know, as Renee said, there were rather than it just being this blank canvas of you know screams and shouts, we wanted to very much focus in on certain people and hear different things at different times that made you focus on Uh, like you say, to to make it a very visceral experience for the, for the viewer, because, um, you know, what was happening all those years ago was kind of happening again on the streets of America. and, And I think we felt very passionately that we wanted to convey that to the audience.
0: Yeah, it's the, the interaction, um, in this next scene, which to me is, uh, with uh, Eddie Raymond's character play, uh, who plays you know Tom or is Tom Hayden and then Mark um, Rylance, who to me is he's playing w- William uh, Kunstler. C- Kunstler. yeah. yeah. it's it's an incredible uh, moment to me because it's re- once again it's it's looking at the same scene from different perspectives and and replaying it from like almost like an evidence, like presenting evidence to to Eddie's character to, you know to Tom Hayden and to me, uh, when you reapproach this this time, it's not nighttime um, at the park, and um, I'd love for you guys just to set up like the perspective shifts, like of different people's perspective. Like, did you try to be consistent and and carry the same and have it translate through each from each one, or were there variations? And because the perspectives are shifting,
1: well, there were three elements going on at that time. There was the protesters which started off as a fun, peaceful rally, expecting this march the next day um, at Grand Park. There was the mock trial between Kuntzler and Hayden, and then there was the bar where all the diplomats and, and politicians were hanging out, totally oblivious to everything. So there were these three elements, and what was important to us is that, again, every time we cut back to the park, it was a different element of what was going on. And the heat had to be the same on all three of those. So Julian and Michael really had to make sure that as the scenes were heating up, they all did it simultaneously. So the the park started out peaceful. The mock trial started out fine. the The bar started out in a very natural way. And as it went back and forth and cut back and forth, it got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until finally there was this eruption, and Kunstler and Hayden got to the point where they were actually, Alan had overlapped their dialogue completely, So, and that erupted. And finally, and Julian had to take that scene and make it so that you could hear, even though he had both tracks playing at once, he had to identify words and important things that were on camera, switching back and forth and back and forth. It was quite, um, it was a lot of work, but we really needed to keep that heat level at the same on all three. So it was, um, it, that's how that was scene was developed.
3: He was grabbing them? Get off of him! Hey, get them. I'd like to say to the cops back there that we, we're allowed to be here. We have permits for this. And out of nowhere, <clears throat> <clears throat> It was six armed police officers versus Rennie Davis and a pocket protector, so I can understand that response. How about your response? Let's press play. The whole world is watching! The watching. The watching. They've just beaten Rennie Davis. Listen to me. We can still get everyone out of here safely. No, we can't. The whole Challenger tried to stop you from saying what you were about to say to the crowd. Tell him to stay calm. No. Tom? Did you tell him to stay calm? Wait, Rennie Davis has just been beaten by the police. Rennie's skull has been cracked open. Did he tell you a crowd to stay calm? No. I'm Richard Schultz, Tom, and John Mitchell told me to win. Did you tell your crowd to stay calm, or did you say... Yes, absolutely. If blood is gonna flow... Let it flow all over the city! The gas is gonna be used! Let it come down all over Chicago! We're going to the convention! Let's get on the street! Get on the street! If blood is gonna flow, let it flow all over the city. What was that? In order to start a peaceful demonstration? <laughs> So once you'd had a moment to settle down, you try and stop people. Get off him! oh you! didn't try and stop anyone. No. The bridges head to the bridges! you're the one who told them to go to the footbridge the ones who were able to make it out of the park without getting arrested or maimed. yeah and those people the ones you sent to the footbridges did they know what was waiting for them on the other side to the convention was blocked by an armored division. The Illinois National Guard, they're the good guys. Jeeps fitted with concertina wire called daily dozers. And when did I stop being one of the good guys? Let's find out. Were glass bottles thrown at the police? Some people threw bottles. Dave was the one trying to shut it down. We were frustrated. All three foot bridges- So you, Abby, Jerry, and 11 others eluded the police. I wouldn't say we eluded them. I would say we were fleeing from them. Found an unguarded bridge.
0: It's really incredible to see just the tension because um, to me, it, it's it, you know what's going to happen. And e- even then... With with how the, how it was put together, the composition of the edits, and how it's going from, like I said, these moments of dialogue into just really inc- just disastrous uh, violence. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's it's Aaron Sorkin at his best because he understands the rhythm, and that's why I'm curious of the combination of what you guys are doing with with the music and the edit, you know, the the speed of the editing. It doesn't stop, and you hold on, and the sequence goes on for quite some time. And it doesn't feel like it ever, you're hearing the same thing and and there's variation. And so, I mean, how, was there much feedback or uh, just like um, exploration in terms of creating different off camera moments that would keep it different? I mean, yeah. Did you guys have any, any opportunities to play with that? I think
2: it's a question really, you know, you know that you're going to start here and you know that you need to end here and you know that this is the journey that you've got to take with regards to the intensity and the energy. And, um, you know, you've got to follow those plot points, but at the same time, make sure that it's always flowing. So, uh, you know, and Daniel Pemberton did such a great job with the score and I'd spoken to him beforehand. Um, you know, I'd had, a, I'd had a good long couple of chats with him about what he was, uh, looking for with regards to the mix with his score, you know, and his, his point was, look, it's, you know, I've done, I've, I've, I've composed this music with energy built in, and I want this score to um, be this powerful thing. You know, as it builds, it's got a, it's got a, it's got a rock out. I think it's turmoil. He's, just, he's, like, I need it to rock out, man. He's like, I just want it. I want God. you to go for it, which is great and absolutely. Um, but we've also got to pull through the detail of what's going on through everything else and all the other departments. So. Um, you know it was it was just making sure that we hold on to that and that that build and that that's that thing that starts off as the, as a as a simmer ends up into this kind of climax and you're always pushing that through as a thread and and it never stops and it's the the, the tension that just keeps building throughout that
0: that sequence uh, it's to me it's it's an incredible craft to to do background walla um, or just the, the crowd noise in a way that feels um, Real and immersive. I, I want to ask you in terms of playing with taking dry, clean recordings um, and then adding the space around it. One of the things that comes up a lot is microphones. There's always when Abby is talking, he has a microphone when, when you know, um, Tom Hayden is on stage, there's a microphone in his hand. So what's your guys's tip or approach when you actually have a practical prop like that? Do you ever use, you know, is it yes. a room that you're going to or yeah, how, how do you play with that?
1: It's great. We love it when that happens because you have this ability to take that. And then and they also have lobs on so there was a lot of playing with that Julian, I'm sure because we we just were able to distort things I mean there's a, a really good natural sound that you get from that that it's wonderful to have I mean part of what we were able to do with um, identifying these things was the it was also these every time you cut back to something it was a different shot Mm -hmm. it was a different experience so you were able to create yet another little micro environment so that helped julie that helped us keep it fresh and and unusual but yeah julian what i mean we ended up doing a lot of work with that with some of those microphones
2: yeah i mean the the you know throughout the movie it is it is quite often the same Event being told from different perspectives, whether it's from Abby's perspective in the in a stand-up club, and he's sensibly playing it for laughs. He's you know, he's telling it in a very jovial way, yet with a very serious message behind it. Or if it's in the courtroom, um, where uh, perhaps a different narrative is being portrayed to the jury, or what actually did happen uh, on on the on the day. Uh, in the park and so um, you know we're very conscious of that and we're constantly trying to you know push those different perspectives however we could whether it was through the the different environments or the you know the different microphones and I you know and I'd like to say that you know you approach this with a set rule and hard and fast way of knowing exactly uh, what's going to work, mm. but you don't. It's all it's all up for experimentation, Renee, right? We right. Would, it is. play with different things, and some things would work, and some things wouldn't work. But when it does work, you know that it works. and, and It know. works,
0: yeah. Yeah, both of you are very articulate when it comes to describing. In a way, mm. one of the things, um, and I don't want to mention this in the conversation, remind me when I saw Argo, um, the same type of crowds and the confrontation of what they are established, and it, not every, yeah. Anyway, it reminded me of Argo. I don't, I don't want to do a call out to Argo, but that was the only time that I've heard you know these types of crowds.
1: No, you know, actually, I have to be on. Uh, I mean, that was really inspiring. That movie was really inspiring to Aaron Sorkin and to me. I loved that scene. I thought those guys did an amazing job. Yeah. So that was how we originally started this, by the way. We okay. thought, okay, great. I'd hired like, I. would Arrange for like 100 kids to show up on the mm-hmm. Warner Brothers lot. We had recorders. We had everything ready to go. And then COVID hit. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's going to be in a closet. So part of what happens, I think, in our business, and especially for me, like every time I start a new movie, it's like starting a new mini business. Like you have a new boss. You have to get a new crew. You get a new location. You've got a new story to tell. So you need new skill sets. So this became the COVID experience. And, mm-hmm. and because we ended up shooting everybody in their closets, then that became the element that we went, okay, so this is what we've got now. So now what do we do with this? So we took that and really worked it with, I mean, there was a lot of net, you know, the archival footage we were able, we had to, blend into that so that whatever we did worked with that too because we were using the archival footage sound for scenes where we would cut back and forth. And it all had to be seamless. It all had to work sonically. So um, I think we really, it was a lot more work than what it seems like and it was really rewarding, I think, for all of us. We really enjoyed it. It's,
0: it's I also think, oh, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. I was only going to
2: say, you know, I, I it holds a, a, a distinct place and special place in my in my memory and heart just because of the like uh, renee says you know we were deep in covid you know and and you know most productions had just stopped but there was a impetus by aaron to get this movie out there he definitely wanted this movie to be out for the elections um and so um I, you know I remember I'd, I'd get in my car in the morning drive to the studio with no other cars on the road uh I'd be final mixing with Renee behind me on a laptop doing a zoom session with uh you know Sasha you know picking up some ADR you know we would did our lunch on the Warner Brothers lot and it would just be us it would literally be the four of us yeah. and nobody else in sight. <laughs> you know and it and it felt kind of almost guerrilla you know it was this yeah. kind of and, and I don't, that, w- that will not happen again. Lockdown now does not mean what lockdown did then, way back in those early days. And it was, yeah. I feel like it was a real kind of, um, uh, you know, it was a real kind of close-knit vibe that we we're all doing this thing together under these very strange and weird circumstances um, that I just don't think will ever be repeated again
0: yeah it's it's incredible to see how history repeats itself and obviously now that the film's been out and all the things that have transpired and you know just in the recent past year with here in the u.s it's it's incredible to see how you know these stories continue to go on and you know to have a a film like this i I had no um touch point of the chicago seven i i i had no reference For me, because I wasn't, you know, I was born in the early 80s. And even so, it wasn't wasn't around, that story wasn't around. Yeah, it's really incredible to see it recreated in a way that's authentic. And, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, it's Hollywood's approach or whatever. And in the case, I feel like Aaron is so um, specific and so good at treading that line in a way that Mm -hmm. honors the past, but also makes it more interesting and, and imagining what these scenes or how these characters could really interact. So kudos to you guys for supporting that.
1: I mean, it was pretty chilling when I went out to, cause we had a break in between, we mixed the film once and we had temporary music because we couldn't get musicians in the same room. So we came back again in August and remixed it. And in between the riots happened here. So I went out to record them and they were the same chants that were happening in 1968. The whole world is watching. Whose house, our house? I mean, all of those things, and it was so profound to all of us. We had no idea how significant it was really going to be. So, yes, it did mean a lot to us, and I I felt really honored that I got to work on this film.
0: So obviously, there were a few other people on your team. I'd love to give you guys the opportunity to shout out and acknowledge maybe folks in Foley or editorial? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, my God. Well, first of all, we have Michael Babcock. He was our sound effects uh, mixer, and I think he even worked on one scene and helped us do some design on that. Um, Dan Kenyon was our sound effects editor and designer who did an amazing job. Casey Genton helped him. We had Footsteps in Foley in Canada, which we were so lucky because they hadn't had their lockdown yet. So, we got that film in just before they went into lockdown. So, they and they always do a remarkable job. Um, My editor, my dialogue editor, who I've worked with for years, is the bomb. I mean, uh, (laughs) Michael Hurtline, this is a guy that is so amazing. Like, I never have to look at his work ever. He just comes in and it's like, thank you, Michael. It's a gift. We had Linda Yaney, who was our sound assistant, who was actually doing other films too. So, and she was at home and everybody basically, wherever it was, it was like pencils down and whatever equipment you had was what you used. So she was used to working at the Warner Brothers lot. So she had to kind of use three or four of her own computers to get things to work. And by the way, we were all suffering with our own internet challenges (laughs) and she had to be the one that was orchestrating all this stuff going around. So she, and you know, I mean, I get emails from her at two in the morning, yeah. it's like Linda, what are you doing up? You know, she was like, Oh, I just want to make sure you had it. And so because you're home, you're working all the time too. I mean, that's the good and the bad about working yeah. at home. You know, you're at home, but you're always working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, of course, Alan Baumgarten, you know, if it wasn't for Alan, I, none of us would have been there, but, um, Am I missing anyone, Julian? Our music Thomas, editor Thomas. Amazing.
2: Thomas Varga, our production mixer, I'd like to shout out. Yes, everyone. yes, very, yes. I was, I was very specific in calling him afterwards to say uh, oh. to thank him for doing such a great job. And um, it's funny, you know, these... T- <laughs> It's it's it makes me makes me makes me laugh because you're mentioning these names of which some of these people I never got to meet, of course, because you know (laughs) very strict COVID rules, and it was on the stage. It was literally just myself, Renee, Mike Babcock, and uh, Alan, the feature editor. So you know, no one else was allowed. Yeah, we were only allowed to have six
1: people on at once. I still have yet to meet Dan. (laughs) Dan. (laughs)
0: Incredible.
1: Yeah.
0: Well. Thank you both so much, Renee and Julian. I really appreciate your time. It's an incredible film. Obviously, it's on Netflix, so check out The Trial of the Chicago 7. I just feel it's a timeless, well, timeless, not, in a, not in a good way. It's just it's a story yeah. that's really important that people pay attention to and remind themselves. And I think you guys did a really good job of honoring the historical context of what was going on and obviously supporting Aaron's vision, which, any, I don't care what Aaron does, I, I will watch every film. He's a master <laughs> of the pen, so. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank thank you guys so much. I really appreciate just the inside. Thank you. uh, Yeah. I look forward to the next- Thank
1: you, Michael. Always lovely to chat with you.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please feel free to subscribe to our audio podcast and YouTube channel, where you can find out about more upcoming topics and shows and projects that we'll be covering throughout the year. And if you like audio and you like podcasts, then I think you should check out the Audio Podcast Alliance. The goal behind the Audio Podcast Alliance is to help bring more great sound stories out into the community. So definitely check out some of these shows, subscribe, and you can find out more information about some of the great stories being created about sound.